Would you welcome with me Kevin Rue? Thank you so much, Carrie. I appreciate that. It's absolutely a pleasure to be here today. Um, it's a real great pleasure to be here in air conditioning today as well. So I do thank you for being in here. I know that sometimes you're almost assured an audience when you're in air conditioning on the farm. So um, that's always encouraging and a little bit uplifting. Um, how many of you, I know I understand, I read a sign when I come in here, it says youth leaders only. How many of you truly are, you're in a position where you either, whether it be vocationally or not, uh, volunteering or not, um, that you actually uh, serve with, work with, engage with youth in your church? Raise your hand. All right, so it is pretty much everyone. Excellent. That's a really good thing. So I, a little very short story about me in regard to, I, I, I grew up, I did not grow up in a Christian household whatsoever. It wasn't until I was 11 uh, that I was actually invited to a church, and I did it because my older brother got um, this word called saved. I didn't know what it meant. I had no vocabulary or knowledge of any kind of Christianity, what God meant other than kind of a precursor to another word maybe that was used around the house. So um, I didn't know anything about God. And so when I finally stepped into a church, it was through youth ministry. So my brother got, um, my brother got a letter, an actual physical letter. This is some years ago. Um, and in that letter, that youth pastor said, hey, I know you have a younger brother who is 11. Um, why don't you invite him out? Well, for an 11-year-old to want to hang out with the older brother, I mean, that's kind of a given, you know what I mean? And um, so I, I read the letter. It was left on the table for some reason, and I felt that that was my business to read it. So I... <laughs> I read the letter, and I see that it says, I'm invited. Like, I'm officially invited to tag along with you, is how I read it. And so I said, I want to go because my brother's life has changed. It's been radically changed. And so that he has this joy or this excitement, that's what I would call it now. I'd be, I'd be more like he's more happy and kind to me. He doesn't beat me up as much. And so <laughs> I didn't know how and why that happened. And so I was invited and brought into the church, the capital C, through youth ministry, that door that was there. And so if it wasn't for a youth pastor who actually cared and said, why don't you invite your brother, who actually wrote a letter back in 1984 and said, bring him along. And if I wasn't nosy by God's diligence through me, <laughs> let's just call that sanctification for now, maybe improperly <laughs> used. Um, but as he drew me unto him, it was through that letter, that invite, that reaching out of the youth pastor. You, I'm sure, have been told all week you have an amazing position. Um, you have a doorway that God has given you and that for whatever reason in our culture in America that we have these positions, vocationally and not, that we can now put somebody in front of these youth whose desire it is to bring them together and to grow them up and disciple them. Now, I understand that that's a very difficult position. I also understand that oftentimes your position is overlooked. You give, you're given a job description maybe when you interview, but then in actuality when that's walked out, you're setting up chairs, you're cleaning up lunchrooms, you're the one who's serving here, there, and everywhere, and it's expected of you, so your position kind of changes. And so youth ministry becomes, let's just erase that word youth, and it just becomes, hey, why don't you just call me like a person who ministers around the church and specifically around the toilet area, you know what I mean? Like... We'll clean it. We'll do what we've got to do. So I, I get it. And so part of what I'm going to talk to you about today is the fact that, hey, you guys, I, like I hear you. I see you. I speak with a lot of youth pastors when I go and do creation events across the country, um, from the Midwest to over here on the East Coast to the South to the Northwest. I've spoken with a lot of you. I've worked with a ton more when I was a missionary and worked with sending teams and leading teams overseas. 
And so I, I hear you. Like, I hear your cry. I understand your frustrations. I understand your joys um, to the degree that I can from my position right now. Um, but also, I want to I challenge you. Right now in the church, I just kind of want to go over a few different things. And this is one of the, the biggest things for me. And it, it, was a, it was a book I read by John Piper back when I was doing missions. It was called um, Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God and Missions. And in that book, John Piper makes a statement. He says this, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exists because, because worship doesn't. So what he's, what he's saying is that basically the, the ultimate goal of a believer is to be with God in worship in that communion forever. That's not going to happen perfectly until we're all glorified with him in heaven. Okay, so we understand that. So prior to that actually happens, we need this thing called mission. So that's his point. That, that, that's kind of like the gateway. That's the means to the end. The end being worship with God and enjoying him forever in his presence and his goodness like it was in the garden. Now, I'm going to borrow that phrase and kind of utilize this, and I'm going to make probably a difficult statement, but one I think that might resound in your hearts, and I said this. Youth pastors exist because discipleship in the home doesn't. Youth pastors exist because discipleship in the home doesn't, or at least, or at best, it's waning. Now, I know that's a very, very harsh statement, and please understand that I realize the stroke with which I'm brushing that. It's pretty broad. There are homes where you have amazing kids that are truly being discipled uh, in the ways of the Lord. It's not about checking off the church or the youth group that I might go to or going to these functions. But as a whole, as you're raising up kids, their understanding and knowledge of what it means to be a Christ follower is becoming less and less and less what that means and how that's walked out. That stems from the home life because the goal, at least in Scripture, that God had for us from old to new is that the parents are discipling the kids. They're teaching them in the ways of the Lord and how they should go and to walk in it. And if that was happening effectively, you would be out of a job. Like you would have nothing to do other than be a part of that process, which is great. And to be a part of that kind of the, the church of the capital C as we all kind of function as living stones together, encouraging one another. But what happened is that started to wane, at least in American culture, I'll say that. And that less and less parents are actually taking the time, going through either a devotional activity or walking through God's word and consistently putting feet on that in their child's life. Now, at the end of the day, I understand when that child is old enough, they're going to kind of walk their own way and do their own thing regardless of how they've been taught or trained. In the same house, you can have somebody who has been taught the same ways and, and just be raised up in the ways of the Lord and love God and they're serving and it means something with conviction to their life. And then you can have the brother or the sibling um, that does that same thing and all of a sudden when they get that freedom, they are gone. They totally reject Christ and it means nothing to them, yet they were trained and raised up in that way. So I understand that as well. But as a whole, as our children are being discipled less, the emphasis and the onus and the importance on your position is more. And so all of that weight then gets thrust upon this transitional position before adulthood, and we call that youth ministry or student ministry. And so then you are placed with a weight that you're not remotely, number one, equipped to handle. I don't mean that in a negative way. I'm just saying everything gets thrown on you And now you're supposed to, within that four or six-year period, 
They might come in one way, but you need to turn them out into some amazing worship leader or some awesome person who's geared for ministry or missions in some way or, or focus or capacity that they're supposed to know Jesus in such a real grow, like, like growing rate um, that they're supposed to go from here to here. This was exponential through those pubescent years. They're supposed to all of a sudden change. And they're supposed to handle all that really well. And you're supposed to send them back to me. But what happens oftentimes is parents don't really care about what that looks like. They're just glad they're on church on Sundays. And by junior year, they start making their kid go to youth group. And they go to you and say, you need to make him right before he goes to college. Because I'm scared right now. The decisions my child is making, they aren't good. I see the fruit of that. And I'm scared. The problem with that is when you have fruit like that, that means you have trees with roots like that. And that didn't grow overnight. That didn't grow their junior year. That's been growing a long time. And we, when we talk about being rooted in Christ, that's when we talk about discipleship. And that's what's being placed on your shoulders right now. And not only that, we absolutely rely upon it in such a way that we, that we put markers in your ministry life, that if X, Y, or Z doesn't happen, then you're doing a bad job. And then who feels the guilt of that? Who feels the weight of that? You guys. You take that home. You get more upset about Jimmy not following the Lord than their parents might. You get more upset about Sarah, who's not really in the Word and it's not really changing her life, than her parents might. And so all of that is put on you. And that's a lot. And then you start to take up a job that was never meant for you. You were never designed to disciple 20, 30, 40, 50 kids at a time. But constant changeover. The transience of youth ministry is insane. From kid to leadership. The average, goodness, I've read, when I was doing Barner research some years ago, I remember the average volunteer youth pastor or minister was like nine months. Nine months. And then they're out. They're burnt out. Why? Because all the pressures that are put on them. Again, you're in shoes that you weren't supposed to walk in. You put that pressure on yourself. And so the markers that you set out before you become very unrealistic. They look good on paper and in a vision statement, I can tell you that. But actually walking that out becomes very difficult. And so as our, I guess, message or theme for the week is gospel-fluent youth ministry, as Carrie and I spoke about for a few months and prayed over kind of what this would look like, we really wanted to build upon what that looks like, put feet on it for you guys. And so as we talked about the gospel and its application at some level yesterday with Carrie, what I want to talk to you about is how literate are you? How literate are you in regard to gospel-fluent ministry? And so we're going to walk through a few things. I'm just going to list some things that are expected of you as a youth pastor, at least what I've heard. And you could probably add to this list with that literal chapter, a book. But this is what is said, at least what I've observed, I'll say that. Today, youth pastors are tasked with the responsibility of discipling youth in their church. But not only that, you're supposed to reach out and grow the youth group evangelistically. So now we're talking evangelism, discipleship evangelism, two kind of different things that, that can come together. Because the youth group can't be good, after all, if it's not growing in numbers, right? We need numbers. Not only that, you're supposed to serve the church and perform tasks around the church that may have nothing to do with youth ministry. At least nothing obviously dealing with youth ministry. On top of that, you're, you're called to set up the youthly weekly meetings as the penultimate social gathering with the most interactive, game-engaging, socially dynamic, over-welcoming two hours of the week. Like, if you don't hit the games right, 
The rest of that night is just gone. It's just literally gone. I had no desire to play dodgeball, Pastor. My sister got hit. I want to leave now. And like you've lost him for the night. You know what I mean? And maybe you wanted the sister to get, I don't know. That's up. Like that's on you guys. But what happens is all of a sudden that becomes where the markers are. But in short, there are often no settings when it comes to the parameters placed on you in the church, when it comes to how and where you are to serve. And so you're serving everywhere, but you're expected the ultimate in discipleship for those kids. Not only from the pastor sometimes, but certainly from the parents. If not, there's something wrong with the church. That, my friends, you should never carry. That burden should never be on your shoulders. It is not your responsibility to do so. So here's a short history, a very short history. And I got this from the Gospel Coalition. Dave Wright wrote on this a little bit, and I'm going to sum, like, he had a pretty long blog. I'm just really going to sum youth ministry up in, in the States. So basically, in the 40s and 50s, organizations such as Young Life, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of, uh, and Youth for Christ began to hold small groups and large events directed toward youth. And these kind of morphed into youth-centered Bible clubs, which in turn started to kind of permeate the church. So these Bible clubs, these small youth-focused events. And the church felt the need to specialize or kind of focus on youth because of the fruit of these events. And so in turn, started to hire youth pastors and youth ministries, ministers in the 70s when it became really big. So imitating the desire to reach large numbers at the local level, mechanisms were sought to attract kids to youth groups. Thus, families started attending churches with larger youth groups. And so Wright later says in the article, he says this, later in the decade, Wright, he says, this, this writer watched leaders swallowing live goldfish in both the church youth group and in Young Life clubs when they brought enough friends to reach an attendance target. If I were to say to you, hey, what does discipleship look like? And your first answer is swallowing goldfish. And insert that with a whole lot of other things. That seems really ridiculous right now. But you're going to insert some other things in there, activities, games, structure. You're headed out in a wrong direction. Your foundation is sand, and at some point you will sink. And you're going to leave the position, you're going to be burned out, and you're going to be frustrated that God didn't work. And so what I want to do, hopefully, is put some guideposts on that, some rails by which you can grow, as Scripture points out specifically. And we're going to look at three passages today. That's all, just three. But I want to start off by saying this. The first thing that you need to know, God causes growth, and God sustains that growth. 1 Corinthians 3 when Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, they're fighting over who baptized who. One was baptized by Paul, one was baptized by Apollos, and there's this argument that's starting. In essence, who's a celebrity preacher that you're looking at and looking to model? And what Paul says is, who cares? Like, who cares? He says, one plants, one waters, but God causes the growth. One plants and one waters, but God causes the growth. And you as youth pastors know there's a lot resting on you and what growth looks like. And I'm just going to encourage you to make sure you're turning into the right direction in regard to that. Philippians 2.13 says this too. It is God who works in you both to will and to act according to his good pleasure. So in the Christian that becomes, that, that, that believer who's walking out a life in Christ, it is God who works in that person to 
to will and to work. So you, as a youth pastor, can often get caught up in numbers when it's God doing the work in that person. And before that, it's only God who causes the growth anyway. So please know that when I talk about anything here, know that it's God's sovereignty who breathes life into the dead body to make them alive. Okay? And so that pressure ultimately in regard to their eternal state is on God, not on us. We're just a conduit that plants and waters. And we just want to make sure that we're using the right ingredients. And so that being said, I want to take us to 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. It says this, But as for you, continue, say continue, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Paul, at this point in Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, those are what's called the pastoral epistles, basically saying, hey, Timothy, as you're going to take over churches and grow churches that I've founded on the gospel, these are the things that you should be concerned about so that there's consistency in what that church looks like on day or year or century four, you know? And so he's saying these things are important. These things are foundational. It needs to stay here. So he's saying continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how often... From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he comes to the verse that we all probably know in quotes. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I had you repeat that word continue because this is what it means, and this is how it's used in other scriptures. Two other places. It's the same term it's translated on to hold to or to remain in that Jesus uses in John 8, where Jesus says, if you abide in my word, meaning you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Again, same word used in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. Remain in me, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. So what Paul is saying to Timothy here, he's saying, but as for you, continue in what you have learned. What did he learn? Scripture. Scripture. That was the penultimate way that God had expressed himself through scriptures then and what was going to be the status quo, the standard by which God builds and has displayed himself, and he builds his church on that. I mean, God works in people. He revealed himself through scripture. Hang on to these things. I've taught you. You've learned it. Keep here. Obviously, he wouldn't be able to see down the road in regard to heresy and the things that would come up. Some of them are inching up. But he's, he's saying that I need you to know these things, Timothy, so that you stay on the right course. You stay on the right track. Continue in these things. Be rooted in these things. If you are rooted in these things, like in John 15, you're going to bear much fruit. The ministry that you're doing is built on a solid foundation, and so fruit, as a byproduct, naturally, of the spirits working in people's lives, will grow. And so Timothy's literacy, his understanding of how that gospel's worked out through scriptures, was absolutely essential for Paul to tell him. And so he goes on, he says, he demands more than merely continuing in orthodoxy, I mean, his understanding of the scriptures, one's general belief in God. It called for a commitment to live and abide in what Timothy had learned in the scriptures. And so Paul is saying that Timothy needs to stay fluent and proficient in God's word in order to be equipped for all that may come his way. And so I'm going to ask you a question. How are we as leaders, that's all of us, 
and those who disciple students, how are we rooted in and abiding in, littered in, proficient in Scripture? If the Word is the best source to counsel the needs that are both before us with the students and in us as individuals who sin and who work through it ourselves, then a good amount of our time regarding how we minister should be found within our Bibles being open. How often are you going to God's Word as you counsel, as you teach, as you think of the night? Or is your mind and your heart and your focus completely taken up by what game am I playing? Am I going to get them there? Are they going to think I'm cool? Are we going to be engaged enough? Can they call me friend? How am I going to have that doorway into that person's life? The problem with that is then they become connected with you and with your mechanisms that you do ministry, and they become less connected with who God is and how he's revealed himself. And so the fruit from that is going to be fun times, maybe really a good relationship, but the problem is they don't get to take your name into heaven with them. The name that they should be walking away from your meetings as the answer to life and the ways in which they can be built up is Jesus. When they're in the room with the Father, Jesus is the answer. It's what got them there. He is who got them there. His work on the cross is what got them there. And the Bible opens that up for us and tells us how that should be and what that looks like. So in every, any given week, you guys, you work with students, and they can come up to you with some pretty difficult questions. There are probably scenarios that you've dealt with that I've never dealt with before, and I hope to never deal with. There are secrets that they tell you. There are places that they go with you because they trust you because their home life just isn't what it needs to be. What do you do at the end of that? How do you respond at the end of that? Are you opening up God's word or are you more concerned with being their friend? Now, I, I don't suggest that they are not exclusive, if you will, but God's word has got to be the one um, that guides you, directs you, and counsel with any person that you come in contact with because Jesus is that answer at the end of the day. If we're not doing that, we're making idols of ourselves. So are you literate enough to open up scripture and walk them through God's word? And do you know how the gospel speaks into life situations? The next passage I'm going to go to is Hebrews 13.7. Hebrews 13.7. says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Why? It's those who spoke to you the word of God. So the ringing emphasis or the, the qualifier of their leaders was, number one, how they spoke to them the word of God. That was the first thing. And number two, how they lived their lives in response to the word of God being applied to their lives personally. And the author of Hebrews connects these two as they are inseparable. So in essence, you are supposed to consider their outcome because they spoke to you the word of God and are seeing that transform their lives. So I ask you again, is the word of God and your private time with God and your study of the scriptures, is it transforming your life? Do people want to imitate you because of how you're walking in Christ and are rooted in Christ, or do they want to imitate you because of your cool things? Because of your cool ministry mechanisms, because you end at a certain time, you play the right games, you know the right words to say, you're on the right social media applications. How rooted are we in Christ? How rooted are we in God's word? How proficient are we in using it? And is that transforming our lives? Right now, culture is screaming at us 
at various issues telling us how it should apply to our lives or what we should accept, how we are to love, what defines the term love, how big that umbrella should extend. And we're listening to culture and we're, we're trying to shove that down some of these youth's faces. And in doing so, in answering this, we're not becoming proficient in the word of God. We're becoming way more proficient in cultural applications. What fruit is that going to produce? We need to know God's word so that we proclaim his truth and that these needs that are deeper than these surface issues be met. So my question to you is this. As students are very much considering the outcome of our lives, both the good and the bad, are we in our own lives so changed by the gospel that it's continually evident? Are we digesting it, becoming more proficient in how it applies both to us and those to whom we minister? I remember some years ago, um, I had probably, I would suggest, more great awakening in my own life uh, not longer than a decade ago. And from that 11-year-old boy who was in church and probably three days a week, Every time the youth group opened, I was pretty much there, Sunday morning, Sunday night, um, Wednesday night if I could, but definitely Friday night with youth ministry. I was in a church. I was learning God's word. I was uh, um, at least listening to people. I was in worship. You know, I'd raise my hands. I'd do all these things. But when it came to somebody standing before me, when God, for whatever reason, put somebody before me to say, hey, this person might be struggling, what I would just say to them basically is I understand, and I just would would basically try to emotionally connect with them. And that's good. I think there's a, that's a good start. But the only reason you connect with them is so you can give them the answer. And that's found in God's word. And I was very poorly proficient in understanding how it applied to situations, how the gospel changes lives, and my literacy in regard to actual application fell very, very, very short. And so I'll say this, it's not necessarily about like scripture memory, your awanas, which is awesome, I appreciate that that happens, but it's understanding how that transforms your heart so that you actually walk it out in your life. And I move on to the third passage here specifically, it says Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, and this one I'm sure you all know. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. When the word of God is used, when it's known, when it's delivered, when it's transformed our lives, what it does, it, it, this picture of being filleted out, if you will, just completely opened up. And I remember looking at children in youth ministry. I remember looking at my own life and saying, God, where are you? I don't feel you like I should feel you. I don't see you. I, you're, you're not working in my life like this person over here or this po- person over there. And so I try to chase effects of God's word or effects or how God's moving in other people's lives. Or I try to chase emotions or dramatic worship songs. And I would watch myself read scripture and feel pretty numb inside that God didn't speak to me as if there was some audible voice. I know Phil talked about that last two nights ago, excuse me, Wednesday night. And I become very, very, very frustrated. And what happened is I, I would watch myself try to talk around God's word so that somebody could have and see a life change 
in them or that I could help them or be that stone that God uses that they could keep walking towards Christ. And I would avoid God's word because I didn't know it well enough. But what this says here in Hebrews 4 is that it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So basically, whatever mechanism I have in my hand will not do justice based on what God's word does because it cuts to the heart. It opens us up before the God who created us and calls us to account. It convicts us of our sin, but it also says, hey, it convicts you, but this is Christ. This is who he is. And so Hebrews 4 talks about the word of God, and it personifies that. And the word of God personified, as we know in John, is Christ. It is Jesus. So that is what we are leading people to. That is who we are leading people to. And so as we open up God's word, as we're becoming more gospel fluent, we need to know that that end result is Jesus, not a fun game. That is Jesus, not I hit 100 this week in numbers. It is Jesus, I'm glad they talked a lot more, felt more engaged. Those things are great and good, but understand that if they're not engaging with God's word, then what has pierced their heart? What have they left with? They could have good warm fuzzies like all day long. You put the right movies. There's some amazing youth ministry things that people do in regard to um, just connecting people, making them awake and alive for their service. But at the end of the day, are they, are, they, are they leaving with God's word? Because if it is God who works and wills in people's lives to do according to his will and purpose, I want to give them that word so that I'm supporting that work. This is the best weapon in your arsenal for youth ministry. If I took a survey in here and say, how important is God's word and you using it? All of you would say, well, it's probably the most important thing that I have. It's the most important thing that I do. But when it comes to planning time, when we do our youth meetings, when we recruit people to help volunteer with us, is it the preeminent thing that you're focused around? Is it the main thing in your youth ministry? And not only that, but going on the private life, what does that look like in your own private life? This isn't about saying, let me get some better Devo times. This is, am I transformed by God in my Devo times? This is application working itself out. When was the last time you asked questions about what God's word means? Or you just go to a site, hopefully read a good blog, take some of those and throw them in your notes, and say it as your own. Look, I understand that for those of you especially volunteering, you work jobs that are 40, 50, 60 hours a week, but because you want to see kids' lives changed, you put in that time and you sit down. I would just encourage you that your proficiency and your literacy in God's word is the number one tool that you will have in your bag. It is what changes hearts. It is what pierces hearts. It is what God uses by his spirit to make people alive. Know it well. Be changed and transformed by it well. Our goal as a Christian, as a youth pastor or not, is to make disciples. And I know it's been said before, but disciples and converts are two totally different things. Easy believism does not save. Mechanisms and ministry will burn up in the fire as God looks at the heart of men and women. If the parable of the sower tells us anything, it focuses on the roots of the believer. If they are shallow, if they are weak, if they are uncared for, uncared for, they will be choked out, shriveled up, and they will soon show that they, will never, they were never rooted properly. However, if we minister to our youth visibly fluent and transformed by God's word, and we minister to the youth with God's word as our primary focus, we provide the best opportunity to cultivate good soil in students today. 
we help point to a road already paved by Christ through his gospel message. I absolutely know that it is God who calls people. No one can come to the Father unless, what, the Father draws them unto himself. Like, I know that. I firmly believe in God's sovereignty and that for some reason he says, you know what, you, John, you, Mary, you, Sarah, you, Peter, I want to use you right now, and you're going to be at that point where that person might confess. We need to know that they're confessing the right things. There's a lot of things out there today. We want to know that we're putting before them Christ. We want to know and show the gospel as the word has revealed it. As Paul says later on, there are many people who've got itching ears who want to hear what they want to hear. If you see anything in society today, their ears are itching pretty, pretty badly. They want to hear a lot of things that are going to fill the frustration, the difficulties that they see before them. Are we prepared to answer that with God's word? Are we fluent enough in the gospel, and are we literate enough and proficient enough that we could actually apply it to those situations? Do we know it well enough so that we're not even afraid if somebody comes up to us and say, hey, let's talk about sexuality. Hey, let's, take, let's talk about original sin. Let's talk about Jesus' incarnation, that he, was, that he was real, that he was a person, but he's fully God and fully man. Let's talk about the Trinity. Are we proficient enough to sit down and have conversations with them? More than that, on the other end, let's just say we focus on the effects of God's word. Hey, Jesus fed these people. Jesus met needs. He cared about the homeless, the marginalized. Are we proficient enough in the gospel to understand why he did that? Or, as many have said before, do we just want to feed a kid so that he's full yet still goes to hell? Those two things do combine. They do intersect. But do we leave them with the gospel and how it applies in those situations? And so in our ministries, we're becoming fluent in the gospel and what it looks like. Are we literate? in God's word, in the scripture, and can we apply it in these situations that we're presented with on a daily basis? I don't suggest it's easy in any way. It does take discipleship of our own. It does mean we sit under people as well. One thing I might even ask you is, who are you being discipled by yourselves? Is that something that your senior pastor is doing? Maybe a very good friend, somebody older in the faith who knows God's word? Are you being discipled yourself? God's deposits his, God deposits his spirit with those who are called to be his own. The Bible's God's story of how that came about. But our literacy and our proficiency of gospel story should reflect and inform how we are to engage with that message personally and cultivate that message as we minister to students. If Christ and his gospel message is the answer, then let us be as literate as we are able and present each week with it. Because, trust me, every week, every day, every hour, there are many searching. There are many who have questions. There are many who are looking. There are many who are asking, who are seeking, who are knocking. What are our answers? How are we rooted? We need to ask ourselves, are we abiding in the word? Are we abiding in Christ? How are we walking that out in our ministry as you plan, as you make calendars? Some of you are planners better than I can dream or big picture thinkers better than I can imagine. Is it on the foundation of what God has revealed and who God has revealed? So that regardless of if this mechanism or this funny game didn't work or these little engaging times didn't work, are we still on the foundation so that when they leave, they have God's word and the main thing was the main thing?
and that they leave changed because we trust that God's spirit will work in that. If his word does not come back void, let's present his word. If somebody doesn't come back because they're convicted, that's not your fault. If somebody comes back because they were offended because God's word has defining lines on what love looks like, that's not your fault. You are to love them in front of you, and the best way that you can do that is be proficient in God's word, be changed by yourself, and then be a conduit as God uses you to plant and to water. And the ease and the burden of what's been placed on you, you trust and put at God's feet, and you watch it grow, and you watch it have its impact. You're going to lose some, and some are going to grow, and some are going to come back and just remember, you were the guy that finally told me what the gospel meant. You were the girl who sat down with me and walked me through the book of John. You were the person who took me through what the cross really means and that it was a real event. It is those times where God uses God's word and starts to flourish it. I know a lot of us look for that seed to grow up right away. We hit our message. We hit our points. We hit our outline. You know, we hit our four points. And we're like, we get done our message, and you're like, wait, and everybody's like, like supposed to come down, like right now. We hit the right Hillsong song or the whatever song is going to be, and we say, now, this is where it just floods the altar, and you look up, and you're the only ones like with your eyes closed, and you look like a fool to them because you're caught up in the reality of God's goodness, but they're not there yet. Their discipleship isn't all on your shoulders. We've got parents who need to step up to the plate, but you guys don't take on that burden. It's not yours. Present God's word. That's the best you can do. Know it well. Use it as a tool. Grow in it. Let it cultivate you and let it impact those to whom God's put before you for ministry. God will not fail. God's word is God's word. It's not our word. And it will impact those in front of us. So I challenge you. I challenge me. It transformed my life 10 years ago after being in church for 20 years at that point. I challenge you with the same thing. Dig deep in the God's word. Don't just read it. Study it. Don't just use it as a tagline. Apply it. Make it the central part of your and, and focus of your youth ministry so that God uses you in the greatest way possible because it's his word that goes through you. You guys have a hard job. I think society and where we are today in America has created it even more difficult for you. God's yoke is easy. His burden is light. Why? Because he did the work. You just let people know what he did. And the Bible tells us us pretty clearly. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. It may not even make sense right now as you're out camping in hot weather. It rained. You're like, his yoke is easy? You want to come to my campsite, Kevin? I'll give you a yoke. I, I get it. Like, I get it. I got to set up for some of this. I get to be a part of some of this. I know it's difficult. I know you might have already sent someone home. I don't know, you know. You've already probably had phone calls with some parents or that 16th conversation with Jimmy who just keeps his hands to himself, you know? You're still talking to Sarah about not idolizing artists, you know? If there's somebody named Jimmy here, I'm sorry. <laughs> I believe you can keep your hands to yourself, okay. No, but it's hard. It just is. But know that as you're faithful to his word, he's going to be faithful to his word because he's not a liar. He's not a God who lies. So use it. Let it be on your tongue. Let it be in and through you. Let it change your heart as you humble yourself and serve God. So thank you all for coming in today. I appreciate it.
The, um, one of the things I do, I work with speakers here. I, I book a lot of the speakers. And um, one of the, the things when I get to talk with youth pastors is I'm like, as you hear speakers um, speak, go back. And, these, and you know you youth have talked about it. Talk about their message. What did you like? What did you not like? Did they stay rooted in God's word? Did they go off track? Did they take the passages elsewhere? Look at that with your students. It's a perfect opportunity. People are afraid to take that sometimes because they don't, they don't know the passages that well. That's okay. Get into God's word. It's being provided on many different, many different speakers, many different stages. Take that back. Use that as your time. See what they took in. See what they didn't take in. Open up that passage with them. Walk through it. You never know where that conversation's going to go because God is moving in it. I would encourage you to do that. Many speakers out here, do that. Do that with mine. Did he use Hebrews right? Did he use 2 Timothy right? Do it with mine. That's the end. This is the end result. God's word, what's, what he's perfectly put out there for us about who he is. So I encourage you to do it. Enjoy the week. Enjoy your time with your youth. May you be blessed abundantly too.